Please open your Bibles again at Luke 15. I am going to reread the passage. I don't think that's inappropriate. So much in God's Word. So long we could spend on this passage. So rich in the truths of God. I listened to a sermon by an American uh, preacher in uh, preparation for the message. And uh, his title was, You Can Always Come Home. That a beautiful title. When you think about coming home, I'm sure you've had that experience. You've been a long way away. Maybe you've been far away. Maybe you've been working far away. Or you've just been a long day. And just the prospect of coming home. What a warm feeling it stirs in your heart. We used to sing with the children when they were small and they were all bunched into the car together and you'd been somewhere and it was a late night and it was all past their bedtime and there's maybe a few groans and a few moans and we used to sing that little chorus about when the road leads home. Oh, who can mind the journey when the road leads home? And you know, somebody would be bumping and somebody would be, oh, he's leaning against me and she's... And we would say, yeah, but we'll soon be home. Soon be in your cosy bed. And that thought in the mind of the child Reassuring. Dear Christian, soon be home. You having some hardship? Having a bumpy ride? Mm. It's good to think about going home. Well, let us read again. Luke 15. If you weren't here this morning, we read 1 to 3 and then 11 to 24, and I want to read it again. I trust just the plain reading of God's word. How... <laughs> It never ceases to amaze me. We said this morning about Jesus teaching in parables, Jesus telling stories but not expounding them. You know what that does for me? It gives me great confidence in the words of Jesus. Jesus had confidence in his own words. He didn't necessarily need to explain them. He spoke. He spoke like no other man. The action of the Holy Spirit I am not placing my confidence tonight in my ability to expound this book. I know I must. I know it's my task. But it's not all on me. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Listen to the words of Jesus. The Bible tells us in Luke 15 verse 1, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And he spake this parable unto them, saying, you see the connection? <laughs> the parable is because of the attitude of the Pharisees and the scribes. Now we jump to verse 11. A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. Isn't that a marvelous and isn't that an incredible statement? You think upon that. You just dwell upon that. Give me. The father divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous or prodigal living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land. And he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. And no man gave unto him. What a hopeless picture of humanity. When he came to himself, 
He said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Amen. Lord bless his word to all our hearts. Brother George, please. Well, we're having a second go at the prodigal son. I could have a third, a fourth, a fifth, and a sixth, and on we could go in a series. You know that. You know the Word of God is a treasure trove. You know that it is a mine that is unfathomable. I said this morning, just wanted to draw your attention to the prologue, that little bit that we read at the beginning, that context that we have to understand if we're going to understand correctly the parable itself. And I asked the question, why? Why did the Lord tell this story? What was it really about? And we saw how... These publicans and sinners, these people who were despised in general in the Jewish community, were coming to Jesus. And the religious leaders were uncomfortable. They thought this was incorrect. They thought this was wrong. They believed that God himself was not interested in such people. Gentiles, outside the commonwealth of Israel, don't deserve the mercy of God. We're never given the oracles of God. No, no, no. And so they felt fully justified in their attitude to these people. And I tried to personalize that, and I tried to challenge you about who you would struggle with coming into this church and question their motives and question even addressing them and giving them the hope of salvation. But the Bible says that salvation is for the whosoever will. And I trust that you see tonight, whether you're listening online or you're here and you're present, this story emphasizes the fact that salvation is for the whosoever will. It doesn't matter about your skin color. It doesn't matter about what gender you are. Only two, of course. It doesn't matter what culture you come from. It doesn't matter how low you have sunk. The gospel is for the whosoever will. We talked about the principles that are important to remember as you come to think about parables. Well, to be honest, we really only came up with the one principle this morning, which was the idea that the parables, the method of teaching that Christ used was to deliberately reveal truth to some while simultaneously concealing truth from others. And so I reminded those who were here this morning, woe, woe to us who dismiss lightly the words of Jesus. Woe to us, woe to those who would dismiss the light and reject the knowledge of God. To those who have, more can be given. But to those 
Now, to those who don't have, more shall be given, but to those who have, even that can be taken away. I will very briefly point out two other principles. One would be that parables are never meant to teach in a negative manner. In other words, in this parable, in this story, you never read of the father threatening any kind of punishment upon the son. And so some would then take the parable to teach. You see, there's no hell. There's no indication that the father was in any way angry or would punish his son. But of course, we should be able to combat that here in the Free Presbyterian Church in Carrydoff because Scripture must agree with Scripture. And the third principle ties together with that second principle because every parable that Jesus taught has one, one main truth in focus. One main truth. Some, you see, Augustine, the church father, would have been quite well known for his allegorical interpretations of parables. What does that mean? Well, thinking of a parable as an allegory, like Pilgrim's Progress, and every detail and every character and every twist is to be somehow interpreted like a cryptic crossword. And almost going back to like the Gnostic times of the New Testament, gnosis being the Greek word for knowledge, that somehow there's hidden knowledge in the Bible. And on the surface, well, it's just trivia. But underneath, only the enlightened can get the true meaning. And that's cultish men and women. And so we reject allegorical interpretation. And I'm saying to you that the purpose of the Lord Jesus in teaching this parable was for one main reason and one main reason only. And what is that? We sang about it three times. We've indicated to you this morning. What is the Lord Jesus seeking to reveal to those who the light will be revealed to? He's seeking to reveal to them the amazing love of God for sinners. The amazing love of God for sinners. Oh, Jesus rebukes the wicked thinking of the public, or sorry, the Pharisees and the scribes, these religious, self-righteous people who are preaching rejection. And Christ is rebuking them by his parable. He speaks in this parable of this clear theme that God's love reaches out to the unworthy and the desperate people of this world. How it conquers all obstacles that are placed before it. How irresistible it is and how transcendent it is. Oh, the Pharisees and the scribes were putting up barriers, boundaries. Oh, salvation of God's only for us. It's not for those people on the outside of those boundaries. But the love of God doesn't know any such boundaries. There is no ethical boundaries with the word of God. It's not just for the Jewish people only. God has no bias towards the Jew. No Darwinism with God is the way I like to put it. I'm sure you've heard of Charles Darwin and his famous writings. The origin of the species. The evolutionists, of course, would herald that almost as the Bible of evolution. But did, did you know the full title of that? Did you know the full title of Charles Darwin's great heralded piece of work, Origin of the Species? The full title is Origin of the species, where, where, where did the species come from? And the preservation of the favored races. That's Charles Darwin's full title. Charles Darwin was a racist. He believed that white people were superior to the black man, to the African man, 
to the Asian man. No Darwinism with God. No racism with God. No ethical boundaries in God's love. It's so amazing. No historical boundaries. Listen to me. No historical. What do I mean by that? Well, God's undeserved love is not determined by the nature and amount of previous convictions and crimes. I'm going to say that again because I think it's worth repeating. There is no historical boundary with God's love. In other words, what you have done in your own personal history and how far that goes back and how big is the account of your sin, how great against God. No historical boundaries. Did you notice in the parable that we read together that we're not told how long the prodigal spent in the far country? We're not told. You know why? <laughs> because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The story of God's amazing love is no matter how low you've sunk, no matter how great your offense against God. God's love is so amazing that there's even pardon for you. Are you listening online? Are you here tonight? Thank God I don't know your heart. Sat in a church like this for many's a service after service without salvation. By the grace of God, light was not withdrawn and I got converted. But there is no historical boundaries. Isn't this good news for tax collectors? Isn't this good news for publicans and sinners? Isn't this good news for the Zacchaeuses of this world? The amazing love of God for sinners. No boundaries that the Pharisees and scribes were putting on the gospel. No economical boundaries. Doesn't matter about your pay. Doesn't matter about your bank balance, the Zacchaeuses or the Lazaruses of this world. No biological boundaries. No chronological boundaries. No ageism with God. God can pick out a Moses at the ages of 80. God can fill a John the Baptist in the womb from his mother's womb. No boundaries to the love of God. And before I actually get into the actual parable itself, and I have some points to make, but they will be short each one. Can I just explain why there is three parts to the parable? This one theme that runs, that, 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 that is the focus of the parable, this one main teaching point. It's in all the parts of the story. Well, then why three? Why the repetition? I think simply because in the first two, the lost sheep and the lost coin, we have this amazing love of God from God's perspective. God is the seeking God. God is the searching God. God is the, the God who seeks individuals. And God is the successful God. God is the finding God. And then the parable of the, the, the third part, which we are focusing on, that which is the lost son, the prodigal son, that gives us this, this theme, this truth, God's amazing love from the sinner's perspective. If the prodigal son was going to know the love that the father had from him, experience it. Oh, the father loved him, even far away as he was. But he wasn't knowing it. He wasn't enjoying it. He wasn't experiencing it. And if he was going to, he had to make a U-turn. He had to repent. He had to confess. And so, men and women, the amazing love of God for sinners is available to all. But you must repent. Let us think then tonight, first of all, regarding the philosophy. We'll stick with the letter P in terms of our alliteration. Let us think tonight of the philosophy of the prodigal son. The philosophy 
of this young man. You'll notice in verse 12, the words are recorded, give me, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. Then it says he gathered all, and then it goes on to say in verse 13, he wasted it. Give me. What was his philosophy of life? What was this young man's worldview? Well, I think simply this. It was a very materialistic worldview. His outlook on life was a material one. And what do I mean by that? Well, material to him was everything. It was all that there was. Give me the goods. Give me the possessions. Give me this instant wealth. This is what I crave. This is, the, this is the secret to my success in life. Material things is all that there is. No immaterial, just material. No spiritual, just physical. No supernatural, just natural. Only that which you can experience with your five senses. Material things is all there is. So get all you can while you can. Isn't that the philosophy of so many? I trust it's not your philosophy of life. He prioritized and he idolized possessions, wealth and stuff. He made money his God. And what a poor God money is. Oh, the Bible says that having money and having wealth is not wrong, is not sinful. Yea, rather, the Lord Jesus commends, if you remember, in his other parables, the parable of the, the householder, the, the landowner, who goes away on a far journey, and he leaves his servants in charge, and he gives them money. He gives them the talent, a lot of money. One and two and five, or two, yes, one and two and five. And he commends them when he comes back. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Those who had got 100% profit. Five became ten. Two became... Well done, he says. Well done for your business mind. Well done for your hard work. You're to be commended. No, the scriptures condemn idolizing wealth. Prioritizing wealth. Thinking that wealth is the most important thing in life. Jesus said... Man's life consists not in the abundance of things that he possesses. That's not the secret of life, Jesus said. In Luke 12 and 15, he says, you cannot serve God and mammon, a word for wealth. You, you can't make that your God and God at the same time. You can't ride two horses. Either you will love one and hate the other, or you will hate one and love the other. Job said, if I make gold my hope, I deny God. Paul said, writing to Timothy, they that will be rich fall into temptation. They that crave riches, they fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drowned men in destruction and perdition for the love of money is the root of all evil. Money can never satisfy the soul. Money can never fill the God-shaped void in the human art. But how many try? How many try? Recently I was down, I've told you I've come from Five Mile Town in the Skills, not too far away, and often we would go there to shop. And I was with my youngest daughter, and we just got some chips and we were going sitting down on the 
down there in the marina, down at the theatre, and boats pull up there, uh, obviously on the beautiful Urn waterway, down on the lakes. And uh, this boat pulled up, and we were just sitting, dangling our feet over the edge and eating our chips. This man jumped off, and I was admiring this boat, and we began to talk. And he told me where he was from, he was from up the country. And I knew some of the people that he knew and so on, and we got chatting. And he worked for a man who was a builder. And he told me the story. He said, you know, that man doesn't know even how much money he has. He doesn't even know what properties he owns. He's got people managing all his affairs. He owns, he owns building sites and uh, housing estates and here and in Scotland and so on. He says, yeah, but he says, I reckon he'd give it all up right now. I said, why? He's dying of cancer. Dying of cancer. Money didn't mean much. Dying of cancer. Oh, money is a poor God. I remember, I think it's Rockefeller, the first American millionaire. Somebody asked him, how much money is enough money? Millionaire, man who's at the top of the pile in his day. How much money is enough money? And apparently he said, just one more dollar. Just one more. It's never enough. I never have enough. I always need more. I always need more. I told some of you today that I've got involved recently in a sports chaplaincy. Incredible mission field, to be quite frank. But I was sitting one time in, in one of these meetings for this, and one of the men in the committee was saying, relating about a fella at work. And he said, you know, this man had everything. He had a beautiful wife, lovely children, had a secure job, had a great wage, foreign holidays all the time. And he said he took his own life. I, I just don't understand it, he said. He had everything. He had everything. And yet it wasn't enough. What was he missing? What was he missing? The God of wealth, the God of pleasure, the God of power, of popularity, of whatever else didn't seem to satisfy. Bible says that Jesus satisfies. Bible says that God is needed in the human heart. That the human heart was made for relationship with God. No, the prodigal's philosophy of life was a materialistic one. One of self-gratification. One of self-indulgence. A lifestyle that was completely unsustainable. Can I say something secondly and briefly about parenting? We've thought about the philosophy of life of this young man. Parenting. Why do I bring that up? Well, I know there's believers here, professing believers. And I think I'm, 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 I am right in saying that some of you are not just parents, you're grandparents. And I want to just remind you from this story that we can learn as believers that Sadly, children can go astray from the best of homes. This father that is portrayed in the story that Jesus tells, he is set before us as one who is an incredible character, compassionate, full of wisdom and patience. And yet from this man's home, one of his sons goes so badly astray. And you might say to me, oh, yes, 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 but, but in the parable, the father in the story is supposed to represent God, is he not? And, and how then can I get comfort from the fact that 
the father in the story is a perfect father if you compare him to God. Can I remind you of a text that surprised me many years ago when I read it? Thinking about these things and pondering my own parenting. And I read in Isaiah chapter 1 the Lord's words through Isaiah to the people of that day. Isaiah 1 and verse 2. I have nourished and brought up children and they have rebelled against me. Those are the words of God in reference to the people of Israel who he regarded as his children. Can I say by way of comfort to any parent here, and I'm conscious as I speak about the prodigal son, there may not be anyone here who is a prodigal son, even in heart, but there may be someone in the family, and therefore it's a tender point. I realize that my thoughts that I am sharing with you about these things could be triggering some very sad meditations in your mind. Can I remind you that the Lord Jesus, the perfect man, the perfect teacher, the sinless man, his own half-brothers and sisters didn't believe in him until after the resurrection. The scripture records for us that they denied him that they didn't believe his claims of who he claimed to be. And so I, I am in no ways defending bad parenting. But what I am saying is, from this story, you have this text re-emphasized. Salvation is of the Lord. And I think most of you rejoice in that truth. You rejoice in the sovereignty of God and salvation. I can't save anybody. You can't save anybody. You can't convert anybody. You can't change anybody's thinking or transform their hearts. It's of God. But there's another side to that coin, which is the ones who are so dear to us, the ones who are so close to us. And if we only could, we, we, we would save them. And then we think it's all on us. It's all on you. They're not saved because you've been a bad parent. Can I take you to this verse? Can I remind you from this story? This, look at this father. Look at his character. Look how he's extolled. Look how he's commended. Look how he's presented. And from that home one went astray. Take courage. And of course, great encouragement from the Conclusion of the story. Let me go on thirdly to the pathway. The prodigal's pathway. It was a journey to rock bottom. This son who had a philosophy of life that was purely materialistic, he didn't care, it seems, from his language, from his uh, pleading with his father, from his disrespect. G give me the portion. I can't wait for my inheritance, Dad. I can't wait for you to die. I want it now. Think of it. Think of it. Oh, you fathers here, what a horror story. What a horror story. A son coming to you and saying such things. I, I just want, I, I don't care. I, I wish, basically, I wish you were dead. I want the money now. Father gives it to him. The Bible says here in verse 14, he began to be in want. Now that's after he's gone and squandered and then in the Lord's amazing and providential timing, then the famine kicks in when he is already penniless. But men and women, he began to be in want before he left the home. 
This is a progressive journey. It's not an instant decline, it's a process. I don't know if you know the phrase, the lights are on but nobody's at home. Oh, while he was in that home, can't you see it? Can't you picture it? He just longed to get away. He just longed to get out of there. Oh, he was maybe there in body, but he certainly wasn't there in soul. And I trust no one here is in the service tonight in that sense. Oh, it's like you've left the lights on. You don't want the burglars to come in. You want to give the impression that somebody's at home, but nobody's actually at home. Oh, the lights are on, but nobody's at home. This young man was in that condition. But little by little, step by step, he is taking a journey to rock bottom. Martin Lloyd-Jones says in a sermon on this particular parable, this son had been in a thoroughly bad situation for a very long time before he truly realized it. A man does not suddenly get into such a state. It happens gradually, almost unbeknown to himself. And even after it happened, he did not properly realize it for some time. The process is so quiet and so insidious that the man himself scarcely sees it at all. He looks at his face in the mirror every day and does not see the changes that are taking place. I've spent a week, I told you, um, in Portadown with the Bethany Church there and their evangelistic Bible club, and Chris Killen was the evangelist. He would, he would testify, he would, he would empathize with that, he would agree with that statement, little by little. First cigarette, first drink, first drug, greater drug, stronger drug. Little by little, on a journey to rock bottom. The Bible says in James' letter, he that beholdeth himself in a mirror and goes his way and straightway forgets what manner he was. Talking of people who look into the truth of the Bible, who hear the word of scripture and then walk away like somebody looking in the mirror and forgetting there's a big dirty mark on your face and you walk off and you forget it's there. The Bible is telling you you're filthy with sin. And you can walk away and forget that you even have it. Like Samson of old, if you know your story of Samson, being wooed and drawn away to sleep, unaware that captivity is dangerously close. Like the Pied Piper of Hamlin, playing his tune and the children are following. Not realizing that step by step, step by step, gradually in a process, they're being led away, they're being fooled, they're being conned. And the God of this world, the wicked one himself, is conning many. He conned the prodigal son, has he conned you? Dear listener, has he conned you? Have you been living in denial? Have you been, as it were, pricked in conscience? Like looking in the mirror and suddenly there's an awareness of something that's wrong. The guilt within your own soul. The burden of sin that is yours. And yet, that has gone away. That emotion has dissipated. You've been at a camp meeting. You've seen others give their lives to Christ. There's been an urgency and a concern. And yet you go back to normal life and everything seems to disappear. Did that happen to the prodigal? I don't know. In his journey, did people leave as the money started to run out? As he looked at himself? As he had to maybe pawn off some of the clothes? 
as he had to maybe change accommodation, as he had to downsize, as things were going away? Did he even have a sense that he was heading in that direction? Did he realize the rock bottom that he was headed to? Probably not. Probably not. Let's think about the pivot in the story. The turning point, if you like. Verse 17, these beautiful words. The Bible says, he came to himself. He came to himself. One day, sitting in squalor, sitting in stink, tempted to read the husks. I wish I had brought one of them with me. I have one in my study. A, a, a carcass of a shell. A, a dried thing. Hard and chewy. Something that they feed indeed to the swine and the pigs. Something that you would struggle to eat. Down at the depths. Down at the rock bottom. God had to bring him there. Men and women, I believe the prodigal suddenly really existed. I believe this is a true story. I believe he's in glory tonight. And you know what he's thanking God for? He's thanking God for famine. He's thanking God for being brought to rock bottom. Because it was at rock bottom when he had nothing left and no schemes to fall back on and not a penny to himself, then, the Bible says, he came to himself. Lloyd-Jones, in the same sermon that I referred to earlier, says, if you have a penny of your own left, the gospel won't help you. If you have a penny of your own left, the gospel won't help you. Men and women, we have to come. Those of you who are converted here tonight, you understand this. We have to be brought to bankruptcy. We have to realize that in the spiritual realm, we've nothing. We've nothing to give to God. We've nothing to commend ourselves to God. That's the place that the prodigal son was brought to. It's like the dying thief. He's in glory too, you know. He's thanking God for crucifixion. Thank God for crucifixion that brought me face to face with Jesus Christ. Do you know what it means to be come to yourself? Well, it certainly means that he stopped blaming everybody else. Can't you see him blaming his dad? Oh, my dad. If he wasn't such a stern, strict disciplinarian, I could have gone on with him. I wouldn't have had to leave. Or then maybe he moved on to his brother. Oh, my brother, my older brother. He always thought he was the boss. He was always bossing me around. If only he had been more like this, I could have stayed. We could have had a good thing together. Maybe then he blamed the famine. I mean, the famine's not my fault. I've got no input in the famine. Bad luck. I don't know what he blamed. But the Bible says... He stopped blaming everybody else. And he came to himself. It's my fault. It's my fault. I was the arrogant one. I was the young man who thought I knew everything and wouldn't listen to my parents. I was the one who thought that money was the secret to life. I was the one that got it all wrong. And I shamed my parents. I brought great shame on the whole family. In fact, I probably nearly bust the business. Bible says he came to himself. It means, if you go back to the mirror illustration of Lloyd-Jones and, of course, James the Apostle, it means that he stopped running away. He stopped pretending. He stopped making excuses. He stopped explaining away the problems, and he came to himself, and he took a good, long, hard look at himself. Look at me. Look at the state I'm in. 
He, he accepted reality. This is the first step in conversion, men and women. Is there anyone here? And do you realize the truth of the scriptures, that your sins are filthy in God's sight, that you're full of wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, as the Bible illustrates? Your sins are dark. They're repulsive to God. They bar you from his presence. And that you have no hope except in him. Oh, the Bible says that the prodigal son came to himself. And he said to himself, I know my father's servants have so much. And I am here sitting in squalor and, and hungering and starving. I'll go home. I, I, he's a changed character. He's thinking different now. But what is it, men and women, that convinces such a boy, such a young man who has caused great shame, such a young man who no doubt in his mind there entered the thought, your dad will chase you. Your dad will tell you as soon as you turn up, get out of here. You've so much let us down. You've caused us great disgrace. You're no longer a son of mine. Perhaps those things went through his head, did they? What was it then? What was it that convinced him that actually there was a point? There was, it was worth going home. That something convinced him that it would work. What was it? The father's amazing love. He began to realize that his father really did love him. And those commands that he'd given were out of love. Those boundaries that he'd placed in the home were out of love, like the commandments of God. The good shepherd giving us those boundaries, and if we go beyond those boundaries, well, of course, we get into problems. And he begins to realize this. And he doesn't just resolve. He actually gets up. And when he gets up, let's think in the closing of the promotion that he receives. The promotion. You've got to remember, this boy is in rags. He doesn't have any money to change clothes. He doesn't have anything to get himself cleaned up. He probably still stinks. Sorry if there's any pig farmers here. He probably stinks of pigs. He's filthy. He's a shame and disgrace. He's in rags. He's, 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 he's no doubt looking disheveled and thin and gaudy. What chance does he stand making his way up and yet walking barefoot probably all that distance how far the far country is away and there's something in his heart that tells him this is going to be worthwhile it's the love of the father and i love i love the ending or this part anyway the ending of this the reunion the bible says that he arose in verse 20 and he came to his father but when he was yet a great way off his father saw him oh the father wasn't angry the father had been, no doubt, thinking much about him. The father had been waiting. The father had been anticipating. The father, no doubt, had been praying. And he was watching. <laughs> he could see. He could see his son. And the Bible says that he ran. Oh, men and women, Spurgeon in the sermon says, if you give God an inch, he'll give you a mile. If you simply reach out your feeble, pathetic hand to receive the gift of God, oh, what a gift you will receive. 
And the picture, this picture that I pointed out in the hymn, the throwing of the arms around this son. The Bible says that he kissed him, verse 20. And in Greek, if you could read the Greek, it's continuous tense. It means he kissed him, and he kissed him, and he kissed him, and he kissed him. Oh, I'm so happy to see you, my son. And the transmission of the love to this, this boy, can you see him so sheepishly? Can you see him stuttering out his confession in verse 21? Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. And if you look at the confession that he was proposing back in the earlier verses, verse 18, verse 19, he doesn't even get to finish his confession. The father just cuts him off. Stop it. I don't want to hear any more. He says, he calls the servants and he says, get the best robe. Get the robe that he had before. That robe that he wore as my son that gave him that authority. That ring that was the symbol that he could give commands. He could order things. He could act in my place on the farm. Oh, the Christian has all of these blessings. The robe of Christ's righteousness to cover their sin. The ring of authority. We are the representatives of Christ on earth, dear Christian. We have the authority to go forth with his word. These blessings came to this young man. And he was hit with this amazing tsunami of grace. This overwhelming deluge of God's character and attributes. This extravagant charity and benevolence of God. Can you see the young man? Can you see him getting hugged and kissed? And this, this unbelievable reception that he could never even have imagined. And can you see him saying, Dad, Dad, I don't deserve this. Stop it. Men and women, none of us deserve it. That's the point. None of us deserve the gospel. None of us deserve Christ. None of us deserve this love. But, dear sinner, whether you're up and out or down and out like the prodigal son, this, the Bible is saying, Jesus is saying, this is the amazing love that God has for sinners. This is the amazing love that God has for you. Dear Christian, be encouraged. This is the God of the Bible. The God of amazing love. The God who accepts your confession. The God whose blood cleanses us from all sin. Isn't that... How can there be a better message? There can't be a better message. And so, dear listener tonight, I simply end by urging you, if you're not converted, to do what the prodigal son did. Don't just propose. Don't just resolve. But get to Christ. Get to God. Go and confess. Be convinced of the Father's love. This prodigal son was convinced. I will go. I will go. I believe that he does love me. And I will take that risk. Wasn't it worth it? Go to the Father. Be convinced of his love. Repent and receive the same blessings that the prodigal son received. May God enable you to do so. And I am, as ever, as all others I'm sure who come here would be, your servant for Jesus' sake. Love to sit here in the church and chat to you further about these things. If you're troubled, please speak to me. If you're listening online, well, there's contact details. You make that call. You ring that Christian that you know. You come and speak to the pastor here and get this sorted. You don't know what a day brings forth. Let us pray. Thank you once again for your attention and your prayers. Dear Lord, I just ask that once again that 
I, truth, would come to sinners' hearts, that thy truth would greatly encourage and uplift thy people, that as believers we will rejoice again and again and again at what the Lord has done for us. Thank you for your love, undeserved as it is, overwhelming as it is, treating us even as your own son, the Lord Jesus, sons of God and joint heirs with Christ. How can it be? How can it be? Will we even fully comprehend in glory? Ah, Lord, we give thee praise and ask that others would join this holy band that's marching to Zion. And we ask again that the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit would indeed be the triune blessing of everyone here. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Hi there. Thank you.